Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 34 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today is 1 Kings chapters 15 through 16 and 2 Chronicles chapters 14 through 17. The biblical text is supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online. If you prefer to listen, all of Dr. Skousen's Old Testament books can now be found on audible.com. Today we cover chapter 12, The Struggle Between Reform and Apostasy. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Last night, we, uh, as part of our family home evening, we <clears throat> went to see the greatest athlete on earth. <clears throat> Any of you seen it yet? One or two? And um, he's a jungle boy, you know, and um, uh, raised by an African tribe um, after his missionary parents died. And uh, so he's discovered by this coach from Maryville College. And so they ship him up to America, and uh, he's an all-round decathlon. You know, he, he can do everything. He's going to be the champion of everything. So in the national meet, why, they have the finest athletes in the nation to run against him. And the announcer says, and we are going to introduce the representatives of the various colleges that will run against him. And we have the team from Brigham Young University over here. And everybody cheers. But they, they just named uh, two or three schools, and there's BYU bright and shining. It's real interesting. Lots has happened since um, we came to BYU back in um, 1951, student body 4,800. Uh, this building was standing, the science building was standing. And we had the three old buildings here and most of these, about half the student body was down the lower campus. Just amazing what's happened. And many of us used to stay up till three o'clock in the morning plotting uh, out what we hoped would one day be uh, realized in concrete and steel. And when the David O. McKay building went up, that was exciting. Now, when the Family Living Center went up, that was sensational. And uh, then our library. Now, there was something for the whole world to take a look at. And then we got the Fine Arts Building, and then the Administration Building, and our Coliseum, and our Olympic-sized uh, swimming pools, and unbelievable just tremendous and this is just the beginning and all the time brother Sperry kept saying and the temple will be built in the center of the campus and when it was put over where it is he reminded me that he said now don't forget when I saw it in vision that was the center of the campus we're gonna grow we're gonna grow so anyway it's great to be part of it we had I had one of my students from one um, one of my other classes um, visit Berkeley over the weekend. And uh, that was quite an experience for her. She'd never been on one of the foreign campuses. And uh, <clears throat> so um, she went on, on, uh, on campus wearing a dress, which of course was, is, is really uh, Victorian. And uh, so a fellow came up to her. He was in um, um, grubbies like everybody else, but a little better dressed than most. And uh, he said, uh, excuse me, but you're obviously not Berkeley. She said, no, I'm from Utah. Oh, he said, you must be Brigham Young. She said, yes, yes, Brigham Young. Then you're a Mormon. She said, yes. Good, he said, I want to get a copy of the Book of Mormon. We've been talking about in philosophy class. Sounds real interesting. 
I want to get a copy of the Book of Mormon. If I want to find out all about the Mormons. Could you help me? She said, yeah, I think I could. <laughs> so you just never know. You just never know. But that was interesting. You're not Berkeley. No, no, not Berkeley. But everywhere we go, though there is still some misunderstanding, etc., everywhere we go, BYU is doing better and better uh, identifying with the, with the good things, even those that have other standards, identifying with the things that they may ridicule and yet down in their secret hearts they, they respect. And, and you're the ones you see that do it. Faculty have a place, but in the final analysis, you're the ones that make BYU. And our basketball team was on coast-to-coast -coast television, you see, twice this last week, uh, last month, twice, at least twice. And, um, and then we were on once coast-to-coast -coast with football. And then our, um, uh, our, our student groups that are going out are just doing an awful lot of good for us and getting national publicity over and over again. State Department says that they're undoubtedly the most popular groups they send out. So it's just tremendous. It's all adding up. So the light is beginning to shine better than it ever has before. I'm real happy about that. Now, next Thursday, you only have to do one lesson. I agree? Only 30 pages this time, not 60. So that'll give me a chance to catch up. That's the only reason you're getting off so light. Then next Tuesday, they'll be doubled again. Uh, we have about two more doubles, and then we're through. Then it's one, one chapter. And we're, we're, we're making good progress now. So we get right through it. Now, I just want to say a, a little bit about the, the period of the fall of Solomon, because there's a very important date connected with it that you must remember. Uh, David and Solomon belong to which century? Which century? The 1,000th century. David and Solomon, that's the golden age and it's the 1,000-year period, and we mustn't forget that general century. David died, was replaced by Solomon, and the latest chronological date for the death of Solomon and the division of the tribes is 922. Now, if you fix that in your mind, you won't have difficulty with the next date, which is 201 years later when they were carried off by the Assyrians into captivity and became the Lost Ten Tribes. And that second date, therefore, is 721. So they had 200 years after the separation when our ancestors led them into apostasy, and then eventually the Assyrians led them into captivity. A little splinter group uh, fell away, lived in the Caucasian Mountains um, between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea until 200 BC. And then Odin, their, their leader, uh, saw the Romans gradually moving west, and so he moved up through Russia and across Germany and settled in what's now part of Denmark. And Odense, the island of Odense, was named after him, and the people then divided into, they were called Yinglings to begin with, they then divided into Engels, Saxons, Jutes, Danes, Norwegians, and Swedes. They then became the Vikings of the 800 AD period. They conquered England about five successive times, the same people. Uh, first, the Engels went in, gave it its name of England. Saxons came in and conquered them. The Danes came in and conquered them. They just did this over and over again. They just saturated that island with um, this blood from uh, the ten tribes. And it turned out to be Ephraimite blood. Odin uh, was of the tribe of Ephraim. And uh, these people uh, mixed in somewhat with, with uh, Holland, 
Germany, Switzerland, a little bit of France, northern France was called Norsemen or Norman, Normans. These are all the same people. In fact, they, they, they attacked Paris so many times that the French Gauls finally gave up and says, look, just take part of the territory. Just come and live with us. Don't, don't keep coming down here and attacking us. You just come and live with us. It's a lot cheaper. So they did. They took over northern France and became the Normans. And then in 1066, what did you get? The Norman Conquest. So you got, you got, you got Israelite blood just stacked in the British Isles and scattered around in Europe, various places. And it's now thought that even the early Celtic peoples may have been of Israel. And they were um, the original settlers, settlers of Britain and Wales and Scotland, etc. In any event, 99% of the membership of the church during the first 100 years was out of those, those people. Now, how do we find out that history? The ones who were Norwegian went to Iceland. They had all their genealogy and history memorized into songs. In the 13th century, it was translated, that is, it was recorded. They had it memorized songs. And um, it's called the Saga of the Inglings. And then the Norwegian language, of course, made it available to us, and it is over in our library. Saga of the Inglings. So I put that in my uh, Book of Mormon uh, text so that that is the highlights of it, so that you'd have it available. It isn't in this one, but it is in the Book of Mormon text. Now, Solomon then comes along um, um, during that 10th century BC, and after a long period of very successful reign, apparently when he was old, went into a state of senility, saw his kingdom beginning to break apart, and uh, every time a group would try to break apart, he'd go to the king and say, I want to marry your daughter, let's all be friends, let's keep it in the family. So he ended up with 700 princesses and 300 concubines. Did any of them have children? Apparently not. He only had one child. Out of all his families, he only had one child, which uh, would suggest a number of facts to us. So as he reached this point of senility, he was very permissive. He allowed these foreign wives... Uh, anything to make them happy. This is typical of the dawdling age. They're almost childlike, you see. They're very easily influenced, and uh, you come up to them and uh, make over them just a little bit, and they, anything that you want, they, they want to grant. That's, that's their attitude toward life. Actually, the Lord would have to hold it against him, even if there was an excuse for it, wouldn't he? Yes, I think this, I think when it's all, when we get over on the other side, and we see all of the ramifications of it, I think you're going to see that the Lord took a position uh, primarily not so much to condemn the man as he did to condemn the situation, which was bad, and knowing that it would happen. I also know this, that the Lord does to his great people like Solomon and David and some others I could mention. He does to them what he did to Paul. And it's even mentioned in the Book of Mormon that some of these things are done deliberately. Why did the Lord say to Paul that he would not cure him of his uh, uh, little problem? Uh, traditionally, Christians said it was... Um, uh, that uh, the back had been wrenched in birth and so he had a little problem there anyway he asked the Lord to remove it and finally the Lord got tired of having him pray for it and gave him a little revelation on the subject and said I'm not going to remove it because why it keeps you humble, humble. Yeah, this, this, this Paul Saul of Tarsus little tiny fellow graduate of the school of Gamaliel eloquent brilliant magnificent mind he could take on anybody Goes into the Jewish synagogues, converts half the congregation. Then he gets mobbed, of course. But I mean, he's effective <laughs> when, he, when he goes in there. And um, 
you, you can see how uh, it, it helped to have a little problem. And Joseph Smith, who had seen him and talked with him, described him to us. And it's, uh, it's real interesting to, to get his analysis of, of Paul. In any event, the Lord did this to several of his greatest leaders, just like, like Moses, for example. Moses had a weakness, didn't he? Keep him humble. What was it? Pediment of speech. Powerful writer. Pediment of speech. Nephi's just the opposite. Powerful speaker. Very poor in writing Egyptian. Total vocabulary of 3,000 words. That's more Egyptian than I know. That's still, that's still a lot. I still admire him for it. But he keeps apologizing and saying, I can't think of the word. <laughs> can't write this. Can't tell you, can't tell you what happened because I can't think of the word. And so he had a weakness there. All right. Um, uh, when Solomon um, was getting in his dawdling age, um, um, Ahijah was a prophet from up north. Now, there was a place, uh, one of the uh, sacred places, Shiloh, uh, which had formed him in the place where the tabernacle was located about right here. Here's Jerusalem. And Ahijah was in the district that belonged to Ephraim, just above um, Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin is right against Judah. And so it's just outside Jerusalem's walls almost. And uh, he came out into the highway and stopped one of our great ancestors and invited him into the field and had a big talk. Well, this man uh, was a very diligent uh, person. He represented all of the tribe of Ephraim, and Solomon had been attracted to his uh, had been attracted to him when he was refurbishing Milo um, sanctuary, that is the fortress. You remember that the Jebusites had that David uh, had Joab go in and conquer. You remember? Okay. He saw how effective this fellow from up in Ephraim was. What was his name? Jeroboam. 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 Okay. So Ahijah the prophet says, "I want you to come out here." And uh, Jeroboam's on the way to Jerusalem. He's dressed for the occasion. He has a lovely new uh, cloak, robe on, you know. And so he strides out into the field over the barbed wire fences or whatever they had. Got out there where they're by themselves. They didn't have barbed wire. They got out in the field. And uh, then uh, he says, let me take your nice cloak. Oh, it's, it's nice. And you want to try it on? It's good fit. A number one quality. So he gives it to him anyway. And Ahijah tears it all to pieces. <laughs> How many pieces did he tear up? Twelve, and he handed how many to uh, Jeroboam? Ten. Ten. Now, how many did he say that Solomon would get? Just one. Who kept the other one, obviously? The Lord. Who does it represent? The Levites, who were the priests. So, Jeroboam was told that he was going to get ten of the twelve tribes. Solomon would only get one. And the Lord, of course, would keep his, who were the priesthood. They end up with Judah, but they belong to the Lord. And, uh, and Jeroboam is told that if he'll be righteous and obedient to the Lord, the Lord will bless him even as David of old, and he'll be very blessed. Well, this is really something. The new king of Israel. Well, Solomon has had it. I mean, he's in senility. He's got everybody weighed down with taxes. He's unpopular. Why wait till he die? I mean, it's a waste, terrible waste of time. So Jeroboam, in his own wisdom, decides to what? Raise up a program to overthrow Solomon in his old age. Now, does that violate what Ahijah said? It did. And did he get a reaction from Solomon? Solomon said, I'm not that senile. And he got his army out, and the next thing Jeroboam knew, he was on a boat headed for, or rather, he was on a caravan headed for where? He had to go down in Egypt, where there was a brand new dynasty, not the one into which Solomon had married, 
uh, but a brand new one. 21st Dynasty is, is, uh, being, has been wiped out. 22nd Dynasty is a whole different family, a whole different group of people are in charge of Egypt now. And so he went down there and stayed until Solomon died. Solomon died in 922 B.C., which is the latest figure now. When you look back in your Bible chronology, some, are, some will say 937, 942, 965. They're all over the place. The one I've given you is the very latest. And this is the chronology that puts King Zedekiah at 98 B.C., excuse me, 598 B.C. for the first year of his reign. So that chronology is getting very close to the real chronology. Because the Book of Mormon says Zedekiah was when? B.C.? 600 B.C. Science now has it uh, down to 598, and that's pretty good for science. Because they've had to figure that out from rocks and, and restructuring calendars and all kinds of things. So they've done a real good job. They're getting close to the Lord now. And um, that means they're right. When they get close to the Lord, they're right. So I gave you the very latest one that we have, 922 B.C. for the separation of the tribes, which came about, you'll remember, as a result of Rehoboam, the only known son of Solomon, doing what all kings of Israel had to do, and that was get what? He had to go up and get what from the people? Their vote of confidence. And usually that was done by having the princes of the tribes assemble together and... Uh, uh, express the, the feelings of their people toward a particular person who was up for kingship. And so Rehoboam went up to get the word. He arrives there and they have a petition to present to him, including Jeroboam, who's returned from Egypt. What's the petition ask for? Reduction of taxes, just like the ones we're getting together now. Um, reduction of taxes. Uh, they said, your father with those thousand women and all those palaces and all those terrible heathen temples that were so hard to keep up and so expensive, we want that stopped. So this was a very difficult decision for, Re for Rehoboam to make because it meant pulling down what? What did it mean pulling down? You cut back the taxes, what does it pull down? The bureaucracy. All the courtesans that have been uh, living off the fat of the land and uh, carrying on the Falderall and the protocol and all the other alls uh, at headquarters. And I lived in Washington just long enough to realize how much uh, falderall there is. Uh, that's very expensive, and they had a lot of it here. So anyway, he went to who first? Who did he ask first for advice? The old men. What did they say? Yeah, reduce the taxes. They're, they're right. They're excessive. Well, he thought he'd better get, some, get his peers in there. So he went to his buddies. What did they say? Yeah, raise the taxes. So he came back and uh, had a little speech to give in which he says, um, my father made your yoke heavy, I will add to your oak, yoke. My father chastised you with whips, meaning he extracted from you uh, with coercion quite a bit in taxes, but I will chastise you with scorpions, which meant a cat of nine tails. You're really gonna feel the, feel the bite of taxes now. Now this, you see, this is what um, Schlesinger said when he was an advisor to two presidents. People complain about taxes. Why? Well, he said they even haven't begun to feel the bite of taxes we have in mind for them. Well, we have felt it, and we don't like it. And these people didn't like it. And uh, so, uh, as soon as Rehoboam had said this, our ancestors said, What portion have we with David and Judah to your tents, O Israel? What did that mean? It meant uh, secession and war, if necessary, to enforce their independence. So Rehoboam thought they were kidding. 
Yeah, they, they wouldn't dare do that. I mean, we've been united too long. They, they wouldn't secede. In fact, let's collect the taxes. So he sends out his chief tax collector. What happened to him? He was stoned to death. And when the word got to Rehoboam, did he get the signal? Boy, he got on his royal white mule and headed for Jerusalem. There he rallied 100,000 troops ready to go up and teach our ancestors a lesson. And he was all ready to go. He's got 100,000, uh, which would probably every man in Judah, practically, and anybody else who would join him from Benjamin. He's all ready to go, and along comes a, a prophet of the Lord, Shemaiah. He's one of the younger prophets of the land. And he said to Rehoboam, Thus saith the Lord, you shall not go up. Return to thy house. This thing is from me. What's happening is exactly what I want to have happen. Go home. Did he go home? Yeah, he did. Okay. So be it. The Lord says so. It's all right. So they became two kingdoms. And then immediately Jeroboam began doing something. First of all, he changed the place of worship for all of the northern ten tribes. Where did he put it? Where? Shiloh. And then he had his place, uh, his, his uh, headquarters for political purposes was where? Shechem. Right? At Shechem. And uh, then he changed the feast days. Uh, he made them a month later than they were in the Bible, uh, which he shouldn't have done, but he did that. Why was he doing all this? We don't want any contact with Jews. Cut them off. And in the Isaiah it says, Eventually uh, there shall depart the envy of Ephraim toward Judah, remember? And Judah will not vex Ephraim anymore. Okay, that's in the latter days. So that's our task now, because we resisted one another all down through history. Judah and Ephraim are at each other's throats. And so you can see here why it was. There was real animosity between them. And that's why I think that the, uh, the most important part of the 50th chapter of Genesis was ripped out. Because some Jewish scribes, sometime after 600 B.C., after the plates of Laban had been taken out uh, of Jerusalem and brought to America, some Jewish scribe was going through the 50th chapter of Genesis where it said that before the great Messiah Ben David could come, there must be a Joseph rise up to prepare the way. And I can just see this Jewish scribe say, ah, there they go, trying to get in on the act. They put that in there, I'll bet you. <laughs> Everybody knows that it's just a Jew, Jewish Messiah. No Joseph, no Joseph. Took Joseph right out. Originally, the 50th chapter of Genesis said there'd be a Joseph in the last days. He'd come about the same time as Elijah. And Jewish tradition has it all down cold. And uh, Dr. Klausner's book, uh, Messianic Idea in Israel, which is in the library, Dr. Klausner's book says in the ninth chapter, part three, that according to the most ancient Jewish tradition, there must be a Joseph rise to call the Jews and all the world of repentance to prepare for the coming of the great Messiah Ben David. And that he will be killed by the anti-Messiah people, meaning the Antichrist in our language. And he'll come about the time Elijah does, and he'll be a pure descendant of Ephraim. That's all Jewish tradition, right in the Talmud and right in the Midrash. And someday we're going to have a track to take to Jerusalem. Headline, Messiah ben Joseph has come. He is here. Getting ready for Messiah ben David. That's the name they gave him, Messiah ben Joseph, meaning... Uh, a, a savior uh, who's the son of Joseph or the descendant of Joseph. All that was in the 50th chapter of Genesis at one time, stripped out. So um, there was great animosity between the house of Joseph and the house uh, and the ten tribes. Excuse me, the house of Joseph and the house of Judah. And the house of Joseph had charge of the ten tribes. 
Now, Jeroboam then immediately began initiating a new kind of worship. While he was in Egypt, he found out there was something that really grabs people. If you want to get them to church uh, on a large scale, have a party. And I mean a real party. All out party. So he sets up places of worship at Shiloh and at Dan. Shiloh being right here, Dan being way up here. So he's got at both ends of the ten tribes, he has these two big centers of worship. And when you go there, everything goes. He found out how the uh, heathens did it. And when we go to Baalbek, we see the three temples which were used for the ancient fertility rites. And uh, the first one was where you came and, and made your contributions and brought your calf, which was sacrificed and given to the priest. And then you made your obeisance and prayers to uh, the, the god, the idol, whatever it was, Jupiter, etc. Then you went next door and got sacramentally intoxicated to the goddess of wine or the god of wine. And then you went down to uh, the Temple of Love, where they had the, um, uh, the so-called uh, Temple Virgins. And then the, a certain contribution was made to the Goddess of Love, and, uh, and then uh, it was an orgy. And this was all built around the concept of a fertility cult. So the main object of worship was what? A golden bullock. A calf, golden calf, little bull. Or it would be a ram. And in Egypt, that's what they did. They worshipped these golden uh, bulls, calves, etc., representing fertility. It's all it was, uh, that's what it was all about. And um, when the children of Israel got tired of waiting for Moses to come down after six weeks, uh, they got bored and got tired. In fact, they'd gotten tired long before that. They said to Aaron, we think we'll go back to Egypt. Real boring out here on the desert. We don't know what happened to Moses. And uh, so he said, well, no, no, we've we got to stay here. We've got to wait. Well, they said, let's do something then. Let's have a party. Let's have an Egyptian party. No, no, no. He said, we mustn't do that. But when he saw they were going to go back to Egypt, then he agreed to at least make them a golden calf. Delaying action. He afterwards tried to apologize and explain to Moses, who was so angry with him. So he took as long as he could, and finally they said, well, that's, that's good enough, that's good enough, we'll now have the party. No, he said, let's, let's have our regular sacrifices today. So they got their altars and had their regular sacrifices, and then Aaron couldn't hold them any longer. And it says they rose up to play after the manner of the Egyptians. And what did they do? Got drunk, stripped off all their clothes, and there were 3,000 men and apparently a similar number of women and that's the scene Moses saw when he came down off the mount holding two tablets on which the endowment had been inscribed. Now you know why he smashed them. Why he smashed the tablets. First set. He just could hardly contain himself, he was so angry. Well, that's what all this worship is about. And Jeroboam led them off into this kind of orgies. Uh, and he, who ordained the priests? He didn't want to send anybody down to be ordained by Jewish authorities. So who ordained them? Yeah, Jeroboam did them. He, he ordained them. In fact, he says, you want to make some contributions? Get the priesthood. So he sold the priesthood for, if you give a certain uh, number of cattle and donations to his religion, why, he'd ordain you a priest in that religion. So you begin to get the feeling here of what our Heavenly Fathers had to put up with with our human family over the years. You also want to become aware of the fact that you can't divide them into good guys and bad guys. The Book of Mormon will teach you one thing, if nothing else, and that is those that were bad guys can change overnight and become the good ones. 
And those that were the good ones can change overnight and become the bad ones. Everybody is potentially both. And it's a day and night struggle and a fight to keep our heads and keep going. Now, President Lee is, is stressing what is so important now in the church. Because it wouldn't matter what kind of a government you're under. It wouldn't matter how bad politics were. It wouldn't matter how corrupted Hollywood became or other campuses or anything else. In the final analysis, who are you responsible for? Can you be responsible for anybody else at the judgment? Everybody has to be judged by his own works. You may help, you may guide, you may encourage other people, but in the final analysis, you're responsible for yourself. But President Lee says we've got to get the members of the church now. It's important to know what's going on in the world. But he says we don't have anything to worry about if we can maintain a relationship with our Heavenly Father that justifies him in bringing about circumstances that will protect us. And that's the Book of Mormon story. They were never attacked by the Lamanites until they became wicked. That's an interesting thing. They were always inviting it. You go back and watch that history. And just as soon as they began to become wicked, then somebody rose up among the Lamanites, or a dissident Nephite, and led the attack. And always you'd find both generals and the prophets of the church saying to the people, you want to have peace and get rid of war, then you be righteous. The task is you. So this is President Lee. He said, you want the blessings of the Lord? And if the enemy tries to circumvent us, you want direct intervention from heaven? Then the church has got to cleanse itself. So all of us who serve on high councils and in stake presidencies have already been told that our stakes must be cleansed. That we have those among us who are not vicious people, but they're immoral. And they're, um, they're deceptive when they are asked about their immorality. And they are to be now dealt with. For the Spirit of the Lord is offended by this deception. And therefore it's to be rooted out of the church. And so President Lee has advised all the church members, that is all the church officials, down to the stakes. The stakes must be cleansed. Which doesn't mean excommunicating a lot of people necessarily. It means challenging them to repent. And if they will not, then they're excommunicated. That's the new, the new tightening that's going on in the kingdom. You're going to notice a new tightening in, in teaching. I've gone through some of the new correlation programs for teaching, and it's going to be exciting. We're moving up on a much higher level of teaching, rather gradually. Some of the early manuals are a little plat platitudinous, a little insipid. That happens when you try to get them approved by a committee. But uh, that, we're getting past that now. We're getting up on that, that higher level where the committees themselves are being better uh, prepared and they're closer to the Spirit of the Lord and they're accepting these great big, uh, what should we say, uh, it, it's, a, it's a great new bite into the, uh, into the unknown where the church uh, had, a, had the information but people have never tread be trodden before. They've never gone into it. And it's faith-promoting. It's exciting. It's the kind of gospel that brought my great-grandfather from Denmark. And uh, it'll keep our people in the kingdom. So we're moving out and up. It's tremendous. So we have Jeroboam then uh, leading these people into uh, evil ways. And one day he was down at Shiloh where his altar was and where he had the people getting ready for their big festivities, etc. And lo and behold, a prophet risked his life to come up from Judah. And he stood there and he talked to the altar. And he said, um, uh, oh, um, oh, altar, altar. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, 
And upon thee shall, be, shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Josiah. Who's Josiah? Whose father? See, priesthood culture should just have that right on the tips of their tongues. This is the father of King Zedekiah, a Book of Mormon fame, who was killed by Necho II uh, just eight years before the Book of Mormon opened. And he had three sons rule after him. Zedekiah was the last one, 21-year-old Zedekiah. This man is in prophecy, you see. And he went up and just cleansed the land of idols and of false altars and dug up the bones of those who had been priests before, heathen priests, and he burned them on the altar to cleanse the land. That's Josiah. See, here we are um, 400 years, 350 years before Josiah is ever born and he's being named. Uh, well, Je Jeroboam says, you can't do that. Don't you prophesy evil concerning my altar, you renegade? Did they grab him? Now what happened to his hand? Paralyzed out there. Can't take it down. Can't do anything with it. And right while he's looking at it, it withers. And he got the signal real fast. He said to this prophet, come here. Come over here. Will you please take care of this? <laughs> did, the, did the prophet do it? Oh, he says, that, thank you. Come home to dinner. You'd have thought that it would have converted the man. But he's like Laman and Lemuel. Talk to an angel. So they're angels. Meanwhile, <laughs> going on with the act. So th this prophet said, no, I'm not allowed to because God said to come up here, curse the altar, and come back home. But did he go back home? No, sir. He got waylaid by an old buddy. And he disobeyed the Lord. And what, what happened to him? He was transferred to a new jurisdiction in the spirit world. Now the Lord is very strict with his priesthood. He tries to teach us that if we will be immaculate in obedience, then the Father can do so many things. You see, celestial law is immaculate obedience. You don't have to do it, but if you don't do it, there's no freedom from the consequences. And the consequences just like this. So the priesthood is trained to be on the celestial level, which is obey or there's an impact. Obey or there's an impact. That's celestial law. And so... Um, this was celestial law. Back he went, the spirit world. Now, uh, we're getting along in time now, and Jeroboam was getting um, a, a little old and so forth, and Ahijah, who had predicted, who had originally uh, indicated that he would be the king of the northern tribes, had become blind and very elderly, and all of a sudden, one day, there's a woman approaching him. She's off in the distance, and of course, he's blind. He can't see her. So he watches her in spirit. And she's approaching. Guess who she is? Wife of Jeroboam. What does she want to know? Whether her little son Abijah. Notice how near these names are alike. One meaning um, Jehovah's our father, the other meaning Jehovah's our brother. And uh, they want to know whether their little son Abijah is going to die. Isn't that interesting? She comes up to the door. She's already just going to knock. This old blind man sitting in there says, Come in, the wife of Jeroboam. That's pretty spooky. Why feignest thou thyself to be another? For I am sent to thee with heavy tidings. Go, tell Jeroboam, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Forasmuch as I exalted thee from among the people, 
and made thee prince over thy my people Israel and rent the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to thee yet thou hast not been as my servant David but hast done evil above all that were before thee for thou hast gone and made the other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and hast cast me behind thy back therefore he said all of your descendants will be slain those that are caught in the field will be eaten by carrion birds those that fall in the city will be eaten by hungry dogs your little son is going to die and he'll be the only one that will have the benefit of a decent burial and a new king is going to rise up and rule in the stead of thee and thy house and because of what you have done to Israel eventually they will be rooted out and carried completely out of this land that is the message and so this mother returned to her home and as she reached the door her baby died or the little boy died now Jeroboam is about through he doesn't know it but he's going to be visited very shortly by the Jewish king which isn't Rehoboam anymore uh, Rehoboam remember we left with a hundred thousand troops ready to attack Israel was told by a prophet not to do it so he didn't and he went and defended the city and lo and behold the Egyptians attacked him took all of Solomon's pure gold targets or, or shields out of the temple and he had to make some brass ones to replace them and um, but he, had, he humbled himself and he prayed that the Egyptians wouldn't totally conquer them and so uh, they were just put under bondage instead of slavery they were put under a tribute instead of slavery and then um, finally after 17 years Rehoboam died and his son Abijah succeeded him uh, didn't last very long and uh, in fact only three years as a matter of fact and then toward the end he started a reform because his father uh, there had been some uh, idolatry growing up among the people and uh, then he um, he was getting toward the end of his reign when he decided that he not only would reform Judah he would reform up north as well so he went up to the capital city of the northern ten tribes with an army to convert them it's the most unusual kind of missionary work uh, you go up to preach to the people with an army of thousands now Jeroboam had changed the capital from Shechem to where Tirzah seven miles north the three capitals up there are they're located right here the ten miles uh, circumference Shechem Tirzah Samaria and they're all right there right in the center and so he went up there with his army he got up on a high hill and we've experimented there you thousands of people could hear you talking as only as loudly as I'm speaking now and so he was giving them a great talk on repentance and Jeroboam's down there listening and finally says to his chief general come over here take about half the army and get around behind these people we'll teach them to come up here and preach to us so it completely hemmed in the Jews what did the Jews do to get out of it they prayed that God would strengthen their hand. They had come to try and do good. Maybe they had been clumsy about it, but anyway, their intentions were good. Did God strengthen them? And did he, uh, what did he do to Jeroboam? He struck him so that he died within another couple of years. And Abijah was then able to get home. And he died almost immediately and was replaced by a very righteous son named Asa who ruled for 41 years. And that's another story which we will continue on Thursday. <laughs>